welcome to New Consciousness Review. Our guest today is David Wilcock. He's an author, lecturer, filmmaker, television host, and I might add, a marvelous singer. He's a researcher of ancient civilizations, consciousness science, and new paradigms of matter and energy, all themes he covered in his seminal first book, The Source Field Investigations. It was published just two years ago and quickly became a New York Times bestseller. Now, he's expanded upon this information and put it into a rather surprising context in his new book, The Synchronicity Key, The Hidden Intelligence Guiding the Universe and You, which has just been released. Welcome, David. I am so pleased you could join us. Oh, you make me sound pretty cool. (laughs) <laughs> I'm like, wow, this sounds like a good guest. I, you know, absolutely, I want to meet him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have hardly so- anybody mentions that I'm a good singer, but that's true. I did a, a studio album called Wander Awakening, and it has. Uh, I did it with this guy who won nine Grammy awards, uh, named Larry Sire, who uh, has worked with over 500 recording artists, and uh, a lot of people don't even track that or realize that. Um, it's not something that I've been promoting very much because there's a certain segment of people that don't like music that sounds like some of the best stuff that was written in the 70s. But that's <laughs> kind of the genre that I went for. Uh-huh. And it actually came off very, very well. I feel like uh, that's a, it's a whole spiritual journey about being a soul that was extraterrestrial and then have to come to Earth and play the human game for a while and go through pain and fear and misery and angst and all these things until you eventually reach a state of happiness once again. It's, it's, uh, I'm very proud of it. I think that uh, it's, it sounds as good as any of the stuff that I like to listen to just in general, and um, hardly anybody knows that, so you obviously did your homework. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, the the... Chinese say that we have to hear a thing a hundred times, possibly in a hundred different ways before the information seeps in. And whether it's poetry or films or the printed word or music, these are all ways of of kind of penetrating our consciousness and, and expanding your message. So well done, David. Yeah, I've been working quite a bit on guitar for the last two and a half years, and I've gotten to the point that I'm doing some pretty complicated finger-style stuff. And uh, actually, I'm just realizing now I've got to stop working on the really technically elaborate pieces and learn more repertoire that's sort of like middle of the road in difficulty so that I'll have more things that I can play and sing along with. But um, (laughs) that whole thing is going very well. So I'm I am putting a lot of time into my music. When I did Wander Awakening, which is on my website, divinecosmos.com, it is there if people are curious about it. But um, when I did that, I I wasn't really, I'd never played guitar, whereas uh-huh. now I can take a different approach and actually be able to do like solo music as I build this up. So so that's a lot of fun. But uh, good for we you. got things that most people want to hear about that are probably a lot more interesting to them than my music. So I'm happy <laughs> to talk about that. Well, you have so many talents and clearly a prodigious intellect. What drew you into the rather esoteric fields of research that you've been focusing on? I would say that having a mother who was really into it had a big effect on me. Uh, I remember almost as early as I can recall 
that my mother had dream notebooks and was writing her dreams down and that she had uh, the Seth material by Jane Roberts, which was allegedly channeled. And she was very into a book called The Nature of Personal Reality that was like, I think, the third Seth book that was made. Mm -hmm. And it had really changed her outlook. She also read Carlos Castaneda books, like all the Carlos Castaneda books at the time. And she started to present me with some pretty psychedelic concepts that she heard about the Castaneda books, like... You know, I would say to her, for example, oh, look at that, look at that shadow on the, on the road. It looks like there's an animal there if you look at it a certain way. And then my mother, and this is literally when I'm a little kid, said, what if that shadow is an animal, actually, in another reality? So this is the kind of thing that was very commonly happening. So I, I did not have, by any stretch of the imagination, a typical childhood. Uh, my mother had a very expansive intellect. She plays uh, keyboards phenomenally well and can sing uh, a complex vocal part over a very complex piano part. And so I grew up listening to her practice and, and develop this. And she also had music students, and that was her main source of income, especially after my parents divorced. She was either doing performing music or um, uh, piano and voice teaching. So I grew up in a very musical family. My father wrote about rock and roll music, and actually I would go to rock concerts all the time. And because he was a journalist, we also got backstage passes. So I got to meet the gods of our world. I got to meet all the rock stars, and I was always this little kid with a backstage pass, and there was never any kids backstage other than, than me and, and perhaps my brother if he came with us, and he usually did. So uh, that also, I think had some kind of an influence on me because people are under a spell. They think that if somebody is a public figure or a celebrity, that that means that they're different than us or that they're better than us or that they don't have flaws. And a lot of people want to lay projections on them that they're somehow divine or, or special. And I'll tell you, I've met hundreds of rock stars, and I'll tell you the same thing happens every time, which is they're utterly ordinary. Mm -hmm. Nothing special about them. <laughs> so and people don't were, realize that. So, so you were an iconoclast from an early age. I guess so. <laughs> Shatter the idols. <laughs> <laughs> so w how did you proceed? Uh, what kind of education did you get? What uh, career did you see unfolding in front of you? Well, both of my parents obviously were highly intellectual. Um, I would say both of them probably have an unusually high IQ uh, my grandfather on my father's side was an engineer who uh, actually did work for the military industrial complex doing um, bearings and lubrication engineering. So he designed some uh, bearings that are standard issue on all helicopters, for example, that have saved many lives. They used to uh, have a problem where the propellers were coming off from uh, when they get strafed by machine gun fire, like in the Korean War. And my grandfather developed a... Uh, a casing around the axle to the propellers on the top of the helicopter, uh, the blades, and uh, that's now standard on every helicopter. It's probably saved untold thousands of lives. Uh, and then his father actually designed and built the New York City subway system. He had a JD in law and a PhD in engineering, so he was able to cut the red tape and solve the engineering problems at the same time. Um, so. 
<laughs> I have a pretty strange background in that sense. It's, it's sort of uh, an industrial and professional basis uh, to my family. And so I was always expected to excel. I was always expected to have really good grades. I did have an unusual reading ability. I, I was put a couple grades ahead of my other classmates in, in terms of verbal ability from the beginning. And because uh, I came into kindergarten able to just blow everybody out of the water in terms of my reading ability. Uh, so I always was picked on in school because I had a, a higher intelligence than most people, and um, it really was quite horrible. I actually went through uh, bullying and teasing and harassment uh, my whole life for being smart. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, I was also having very profound psychic experiences. I started to read books on how to develop my ESP when I was seven, and I actually put this cover over a book on ESP to bring it to school, and I wrote free reading on it. And you can actually still see the imprint of where I wrote free reading on the cover of the book. And I was practicing these ESP exercises based on stuff that my mother had said, based on dreams that I was having, based on an out-of-body experience that I had when I was five. And I started to get results. I, I started to telepathically influence my best friend at the time. His name was Eric. And I was able to get Eric to wake up in the middle of the night, and he felt like there was somebody in the room staring at him. And I realized that was probably my astral body. And so this is, again, not normal for a seven-year-old, um, but it, I was very actively interested in developing my ESP. And I've just continued to do research ever since then. Uh, I, I was researching DNA when I was in fifth grade and the idea that DNA was not uh, randomly evolved. It couldn't have been randomly evolved. I was researching body language by the time I was in junior high school, like seventh grade. Um, and I'd already researched by that point, you know, lots and lots of esoteric stuff about like tarot cards and, uh, you know, all the ESP and hypnosis books I could get my hands on, all that kind of stuff. So I really did have a well-rounded background. By the time I was a senior in high school, I was actually giving people tarot card readings in the <laughs> senior lounge. And with astonishing accuracy. I mean, people would sometimes just be completely blown away by it. And I was also, by the time I was, I guess, 15 or 16, maybe 16, I started to be able to do lucid dreaming. I, I'd gotten books on that. And uh, so I guess you could kind of say... I mean, I shouldn't say this about myself, but others have said this about me, that I was like a psychic child prodigy, mm -hmm. you know, and um, I really was very advanced on this stuff. I've been researching this my whole life, so nothing really surprises me. People hit me with an esoteric story, and it's not going to surprise me, no matter how far out it sounds. It's like I've probably had a similar experience. Uh, well, one of the things I so liked about your book is that in addition to all the esoteric stuff, there is hard science. There is real live history. What your very uh, kind of autodidactic background uh, has prepared you for is the ability to see the bigger patterns in all of this and how they intertwine. You're, yeah, that's a good point. Um... Remember I told you that my grandfather designed these, uh, there's, he has 80 different patents for bearings, mm -hmm. and one of them is a life-saving thing on helicopters. Um, yeah. Well, there was a very strange thing that would happen. We'd go over to their house when I was a little kid, and he always saw me as 
the one that he wanted to try to make like him. So when we go over to Nana's and Papa's, that's what we called them, uh, Papa would take me up into his office up in the, you know, the up part of the house in the back, and he had this little office back there, and he'd sit me down in front of this computer. Back then, computers were like something nobody had unless you were a total geek. <laughs> the, the screen was all amber-colored. It, it, you know, it, was, it had this funny, weird noise that it would make. And he was trying to write a program on uh, tapered land thrust bearings. And a tapered land thrust bearing is a specific type of bearing that basically creates a consistent pressure over a round uh, disc so that you have an axle that's attached to the disc that can spin and rotate freely in either direction. And they're used for military land vehicles that have to go over rough terrain. Well, he was trying to design a program that would allow you to custom make a bearing. Uh, and basically, the problem was that there was only two or three of these bearings that everybody was using, and they had to build around them uh, to any other design specification. So here I am, this little kid, and he's trying to explain to me how he's writing this program that uses things like matrix inversions and all kinds of really elaborate mathematics. And, uh, you know, basically what he was trying to do is, is write a program that could calculate the the film thickness of oil and the viscosity of oil over an entire matrix area, which was the pad in, in the bearing. And he had to do lots of little points and sample each one for how much viscosity and film thickness and temperature. So I, I would be hearing him describe this to me, and what he was really doing was trying to solve the problem himself. Um, like there was one time when he couldn't compile the various modules of the program, and it, the whole thing came down to one semicolon that he'd made a mistake in. So what did that teach me? That was a very, I think that was divinely ordained. I think there was some sort of higher guidance involved in this happening. Because I'd go in there, and I'd hear really complex stuff that was way beyond my ability to understand. And all I would do is I, I would be very relaxed. I wouldn't get nervous at all. And I'd just say, okay, I may only understand 5% of what he's saying. And over the years, it probably became more like 50%. But in the process, he enjoys talking about this. He's happy. And I'm actually learning, you know, something. I'm, I'm, I'm following what he's trying to do, and I do want to help my grandfather write this program because if he writes this program, he'd make tons and tons of money. Well, he died without ever being able to solve the, the problem. But um, in the process, I learned no matter how crazy and complicated and scary looking some kind of information is, just throw yourself in and figure out what you can. Mm -hmm. And I've done that with all the branches of science. You know, thanks to the Internet, you can read anything you want without having to go to college. And uh, I, I studied chemistry and physics and biology, and, and, and history probably was one of the more difficult ones to tackle. And I kind of held off on that. But in this book, I've demonstrated, you know, a pretty encyclopedic history basis and uh, showing that there's this very odd experience we're all having. It's like we're in the matrix, you know, the, the same, we could be having this conversation 2,160 years ago in a, in a, in a weird little grove in, in Rome somewhere, you know, that's how bizarre this stuff is. We find out that not only is reincarnation real and the same characters keep showing up from one incarnation to another and they have the same face. And that, of course, causes you to have to rewrite the laws of DNA and genetics and biology. But then we're also seeing that apparently, and we've only identified a few cases so far, 
but we have seen world leaders who look exactly like their counterparts, exactly one age of the zodiac apart. They look the same, and they do the same things, and they're involved in the same political activities and the same military activities, exactly one age of the zodiac apart. It's like there's a hologram, and we're partly having free will, but we're also partly dancing to a script. And there's some weird interface between free will and destiny that's sculpting our lives much more than people would think. the, the number of people who've read this book are probably only a few thousand right now, but already it's having a, a sensational effect on how people think. It really changes everything. And I well, assume you've read it, right? I have read it. All yeah. 500 pages of it, thank you very much. <laughs> um, well, speaking of the book, let's get into it. Um, it's called the synchronicity key, the hidden intelligence guiding the universe and you. So I think we could probably spend the next hour just on the tagline, but let's start with the title. <laughs> what do you mean by synchronicity in the context of your book? Okay. Uh, synchronicity was coined by Carl Jung, who I found out about very early in my life. He, his name shows up a lot because he was a contemporary of Sigmund Freud. But then he went off into a direction that Freud couldn't support. Jung's basic belief was that we have a collective unconscious, as he called it. And now, of course, that word is not in vogue. It's subconscious, because it is partially aware in your waking thoughts, and there are ways to access it in your waking thoughts. But anyway, he called it a collective unconscious, and he had a near-death experience where he experienced clinical death. He had a cessation of heart rate brainwave activity and respiration. But in the process, he was still having contiguous thoughts in some sort of parallel reality that people all identify when they have a near-death experience. There's been lots of clinical studies of people having the same set of experiences when they go into the afterlife in a clinical death scenario, and then they get resuscitated. Um, In Jung's case, he experienced this beautiful light And he became aware when he was out there that the light was a personality, that the universe has a personality. The universe is alive. The universe thinks, which he'd already kind of been on that track with collective unconscious. But then he has this NDE, and the light basically tells him, this is who we all are, and there's a series of personality archetypes. There's a series of characteristics that everybody has. So he then developed... From this experience, the idea that there are uh, blueprints of consciousness that we pop into and that the consciousness is trying to make us aware of itself, and it uses an experience called synchronicity to do that. And synchronicity, as Jung coined it, is a bizarre correspondence between two or more seemingly unrelated events. So, for example... um, I get numerical synchronicity all the time. I will see numbers on a clock. When I, I, I slept in late today, and I'm glad we were able to do the show because I got up right before the show started. But when I first got up, it was 11-11. And I just look at the clock, and I start laughing because there it is again. I've even had cases where I was uh, driving to a job that I had at Dutchess Community College. I was in the pit band for a play called uh, Three Penny Opera. And as we're as I'm driving out there, I have this thought that, you know, I really ought to be 
losing the fear and just I, I got to be more careful because I left late and I'm not and I'm worried about whether I'm going to make it and I got to leave earlier. Right? It's just a basic, hey, don't cut things to the last minute kind of message. As I have that thought, and right as I have that thought, I look at the clock in my car, and it was, I believe, 5.55. I look at the odometer, and I've got a bank of digits on the odometer at the same time, and simultaneously, rain starts pouring down. And that, to me, is a synchronicity. It's like you could say, if you're a skeptic, oh, well, he's just making a connection out of nothing. But this kind of stuff is strange, and it happens again and again. And in the book, of course, I have several very dramatic examples. And synchronicity really kind of polarizes the audience, because the people who have the experience say, oh, this is totally obvious, it happens to me all the time. The people who don't have the experience tend to be violently opposed to the whole idea. Okay, and well, anybody who using... does have it is an idiot. Right. You're using the whole concept of synchronicity to plug into a number of other concepts that you pull into the book. Yeah. Uh, one is the concept of these cosmic cycles. Sure. Uh, the, the periodicity, whether it's 52 years or 2,160 years or whatever, just these, these kind of, um, uh, factors of the, 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 Long, the Mayan long count, you know, which, which you then tie at the end of the book, not to the Earth's wobble, but to the brown star or black star. Sibiru, yeah. yeah. The, the Sumerians actually were right, except that it's not a planet, it's actually a star. And that knowledge is well known on the inside in mystery schools and, uh, you know, secret government classified programs that we do have a brown dwarf that we're orbiting and it does have planets that orbit around it as well and the so-called Anunnaki do live on one of those planets to this day that's one of the places they live it's not the only place but they do have a huge settlement on one of these planets around this companion star but that's not so much the book is not about the Anunnaki it doesn't even hardly mention the Biru it's about the idea that stars themselves generate uh, a pattern that is like a fluid dynamic. In other words, there's an energy all around us that's fluid-like, and it's mm -hmm. outside our physical reality, so we only notice it when it coalesces into matter. But it does still exist in a non-physical form, and within that reality, you could say a hyperdimensional reality. Mm -hmm. It very much is a tangible thing in that level of existence. And it has ripples and vibration. And it turns out that when you vibrate ordinary water, that you get beautiful geometric patterns if you vibrate the water according to some of the basic diatonic frequencies that you get in, like, the white keys on the piano. Mm -hmm. In order to see that geometry, all you have to do is put little particles in the water, and then all of a sudden it jumps out. So then you've got to take a huge leap forward from that little premise to the idea that stars, the surface of stars, is actually breathing in and out. It's oscillating up and down, and there's plenty of good evidence for that. Stars are actually, they have an internal vibration that's causing this geometry to form, and that geometry actually creates pressure currents that determine where the planets are held in place and how they rotate around the sun. Mm -hmm. So all of the planetary orbits can be solved 
by taking certain basic geometric shapes called the platonic solids and showing basic relationships of how they fit together. And you can solve every single position of every planet in our solar system that way. And that was discovered in modern times by John Martineau, who wrote a book called A Little Book of Coincidence in the Solar System. Mm-hmm. Of course, very tongue-in-cheek title, because there's no coincidence to this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the point is that not only do these geometric forces exert a very strong gravitational force that actually holds the planets where they belong, so they don't just go rolling around the solar system like billiard balls, but they're very much held in position. It also, this same geometry, is the basis of thought and consciousness. And so if you are, in this case, in a binary solar system and you're orbiting another star, that star has geometry that's just sort of hanging out in space. And as we orbit around that geometry, it's as if we're moving through different influences, similar to the idea that there was one place when I used to live in Rosendale, New York, on Route 32, and you drive past these caves. And as soon as you drive past the caves, all the air in the car would get really cold for, for just a couple seconds. And then it would stop, and it would go back to being warm. It could be the middle of the summer, and you drive past this one part of Route 32, and whoo, the air just gets totally cold in the car. It was always great. I mean, I loved that part. And this is kind of the same thing. It's like there are influences that we, instead of driving, we're just sort of floating through interstellar space, and we hit these regions, and the regions then have a very noticeable effect on how we think and how we feel. And if you really want to go down the rabbit hole a little bit deeper, um, this relates back to the idea that the geometries themselves are built of close-packed spheres. You can take smaller spheres of the same diameter and pack them together and build these shapes out of it. And then each of those spheres, as it turns out, just like the six edges of a snowflake, they're all going to have the same image. The spheres actually are living templates. And whatever happens in one timeline, in one sequence of one sphere, that same event will now be etched into the next sphere. So if you get a really powerful event that happens in one sphere, it could very much influence the next time around the same thing happens because it's holographic. If you take a holographic plate and you take an image or a holographic picture, you cut that plate up into little pieces, each piece will show an image of the entire hologram, not of just one part of it. In the same sense, as we orbit through this geometry, we're orbiting through smaller spheres that build the shape, and each sphere actually is the same sequence of events that gets etched into it as we mm-hmm. create reality. So we, we have to keep going through these influences that we created before. I think it might be helpful for the listener to, if we describe, went into the role of light in all of this, I found some of the experiments that you discussed totally mind-boggling, fascinating, amazing. Um, okay, cool, yeah. Nobody's asked me that before, so I'm happy to talk about that. Well, you know, you mentioned that Jung was focusing on the light as the the uh, kind of active element here. So, yeah. Um, um, 
I'm not sure if, if what I'm going to say is what you're looking for or not. Well, but um, you, had, the basis- you had a couple of experiments, it, like the um, the DNA acting as an antenna, the the laser right. light. Okay, know. that is what I thought you were asking me. Okay. Yeah. That's good. Um, that's that's a kind of a interesting technical subject that I haven't actually talked about yet in anything that people have been hearing. Um, you got to go back to a basic core principle, which is very esoteric for most people. And the idea is that there's only one identity in the entire cosmos. And you are that identity, and you're asleep. You, you're, you're having amnesia. The human experience is like this core identity that you are. It's still in there, in you, somewhere. And if you really dig deep enough, you can find it, and you can become that identity. But most people have to go through multiple lifetimes to just peel away the layers little by little to more and more remember that you are, in fact, the creator of the universe, and we all are. It's, there's nothing else there. And if you can vibe with that concept, then that means that everything in the universe is created as a thought of this one infinite creator, that thoughts built reality, and that's all there is. So that is very bizarre, too, because the connection between thoughts and matter seems to be pretty tenuous to most people. But the idea here is that, in fact, physical matter is not made of particles. It's made of energy, and the same vibratory stuff I was talking about with geometry, I show in the book very clearly uh, that there is a geometric basis to physical matter that atoms and molecules are actually nothing more than resonance patterns of this fluid-like energy, which actually is the energy of thought. So in order to really explain this and not sound like I'm just concocting things out of thin air, I draw heavily on a series of books that I read in 1996 is when it started, called The Law of One. And I had already, obviously, by that point, been a serious science geek. I'd been doing it for many years. I had tons of research under my belt. And especially since I started to go to college and I had my meals paid for and I was living on campus, I had lots of time to devote to esoteric study. And so um, in that course of learning all these things, I read about 300 books just in college. I got out, and then I read Law of One, and... Here I thought I'd made all these discoveries and maybe I would write books about them someday. And then the law of one comes along and just blew me out of the water. It it was way more advanced than what I'd read so far, but there were already all these things in there that I could prove through research that didn't occur when the books were originally written in 1981 through 83. And these books apparently were written by an extraterrestrial consciousness Mm -hmm. through a woman who was unconscious and was not aware of the words that she was speaking, and then was being interviewed by a physics professor named Dr. Don Elkins. And it seems like, for most people who are still in the matrix, if you will, a very unlikely premise that anything of value would come out of that. But, of course, there's a pedigree with Edgar Cayce and his background, where where he did 14,000 medical readings and was able to accurately diagnose somebody's problems without any... Uh, front-loading. He, he could just get their name and address and then tell you everything that was wrong with them. And this was uh, also he, in his sleep. Yeah. yeah. And so the law of one, you know, 
Edgar Casey fanatics probably don't like it when I say this, but I feel like the law of one is a significant improvement over the Casey readings. The Casey readings kind of ramble, and they're difficult to understand, and the sentence structure can go on and on and on, whereas the law of one is very precise. There's not a single wasted word. And they have to manipulate language in order to express concepts that we don't even have the language to represent. In fact, actually, to this morning I had a dream in which the whole concept of, of past, present, and future is a linguistic constraint that doesn't accurately reflect the nature of reality. Any, any experience that we're having is an experience that happened before on another one of these wheels of time, and the wheel just rolls back to the same place again. And so you can't ever be sure if anything that's happening to you is, is unique or if it's a repetition of something else. And uh, I believe that the, the core of what you wanted to, me to get to is the model of the universe that the Law of One talked about, which is that the universe is built of light. And they specifically, this is where it gets really strange, they specifically say light love, and they explain that these are two aspects of universal energy. So it was a major breakthrough for me to figure out what the heck they're talking about. Because even when I wrote the previous volume that has over a thousand academic references and basically proves that the law of one model is correct with redundant evidence, um, what I did not have was the understanding of why they say light love. So to make it really short, light is photons. Love is a tunnel that photons travel through. Mm -hmm. And when you have a thought, you create a, a, a tunnel that photons can travel through. So if you think about a person, you automatically create a tunnel between yourself and them. And then, as is the nature of consciousness, it's automatic that as soon as that tunnel is created, photons will start flowing back and forth between the two of you. And that actually also is the way that matter is created. Matter as a vibration, the geometries that I was talking about, are basically light flowing through these tunnels in certain geometric patterns. And that's all stuff that's going to be in a sequel to this book, because in this book I didn't really get too technical um, in terms of the physics of how this works. But I did get into the light-love principle, and the reason why I got into that is it's a major paradigm shift when you find out that Oil and pharmaceuticals are the two biggest money makers on earth, and the business is in keeping us sick, not in making us well. Because if we're well, there's no money to be made. And we have been denied one of the most intrinsic things we need to know to stay healthy, which is that your DNA is a photon storehouse. Each DNA molecule is like a little fiber optic cable that's holding an average of 1,000 photons per DNA molecule. And they're in there. If they weren't in there, you'd be dead. And when you start to get sick, certain parts of your body, your tissues, will dim out, and you will lose the, the, the luminosity. The photons actually disappear. Now, what is so crazy is that somebody can think thoughts about you, especially if they're being violent or aggressive, if they're trying to shame you, if they're trying to make you feel bad, if they try to trigger your temper, and you, you go into a fighting scenario with that person or a scenario where you crumble, what they're really trying to do is break you. They're trying to get you to have a submissive response in the, in the wake of conflict. If there is a conflict, and if you end up submitting in the conflict, 
then you just throw the gates wide open and your DNA starts bleeding off photons like crazy to the person who's attacking you. And it's interesting these... because people talk about energy vampires. Oh, yeah. That is so much more real than most people think. And uh, this book, a lot more than source field, I really wanted to establish that there is a scientific basis to this because it finally helps us make sense out of why there are people on Earth who seem to be doing the biddings of some astral consciousness. There's a lot of, if you really go far into the ET stuff and you get into the scariest ET stuff, there's the idea that the, the so-called Illuminati or New World Order, that these guys are actually being held under the boot heels of some sort of powerful negative extraterrestrials. And I do believe that's true. Now, these negative beings are not allowed to do too much. They're, they're allowed to do only what we invite. And that's the law of one model that shows that the universe ultimately is benevolent. It's not this place where you're built to be tortured. But if you have negative thoughts and if you do negative things, there's universal law that requires you to have a negative experience. And negative beings are allowed to create that experience for you up to the amount that you invite. So on a planetary level, what we're actually seeing is that wars are allowed to happen, but only up to the level of what we invite. Atrocities are allowed to happen, but only up to the level of what our negativity has created. So people who die in war may have killed someone in war in another lifetime. And there is a whole basis to this that takes a really advanced knowledge to be able to appreciate it. This is one of those things that really incites controversy. People do yeah. not like the idea that, that there is a, a creator out there that holds you precisely accountable for what you do. They would like to think that you get to squeeze out without having to be accountable for your actions. It's not true. I've learned as a result of running a very high spiritual path, or what I try to have is a very high spiritual path, you don't get away with anything. <laughs> You're accountable for every jot and tittle of what you do to others. There is no forgiveness, ultimately, because you have to work off what you did, and that is forgiveness. Forgiveness is bringing your balance up to an equilibrium, again. And, and you have to be... The, the human experience is an experience where we get to create thoughts, and if our thoughts are loving, then everything's fine, and, and we have success, and we have prosperity, and we have joy. And if we create anger and hatred, and we start absorbing other people's energy using this method that most people don't even realize exists, but believe me, people who are negative, they do profit from stealing others' energy. They just don't know why it makes them feel good. You know, when we do that, you are going to have to have all that stuff done back to you. I would really love for you to just describe um, one or two of those experiments with light, with laser sure. light. Okay. Uh, some of the basic ones would be that Dr. Peter Garyayev, a Russian scientist, takes a piece of DNA, puts it in a little room, and then shines a laser into the, into the room. Now, we would normally expect that the laser light would be evenly distributed throughout the room, or fairly evenly distributed. But instead, what happened, and he was able to confirm this with microscopes, is that the DNA actually absorbed the light. And 
I should point out that I have whole episodes on my Guy and TV show where I talk about this. And if you go to uh, wisdomteachings.com, that's the website that gets you to my television show. This is something that takes a lot of time to explain well, and I do do it in several episodes of that show. But okay. anyway, uh, here's the really weird part. Not only is DNA seeming to have some gravitational attraction to light, because light is not able to be influenced by any forces except gravity, and when you go near a black hole, of course, it will vector in light to itself. That doesn't happen in other types of energy fields like electromagnetism. So there seems to be a microgravitational effect going on inside DNA that allows it to absorb light that way, and that's how our DNA is getting the photons. But then the really crazy part is that you take the DNA out of the room, you remove the DNA, and the light you would think would stay inside the DNA, but it doesn't. The light stays where the DNA had been, and now you have nothing by any conventional definition, there is nothing there. There's no DNA. And yet there is a force field that holds the light in position where the DNA was, and it will continue to do so. And it does so for an astonishingly long time. He was able to take liquid nitrogen and, and blast this little phantom, and the photons would escape. But then within five to eight minutes, new photons would return, and the thing would reappear. And he was able to continue doing that and have new photons reappear for an entire 30 days after the DNA was removed. And that, to me, is so groundbreaking in scope and importance. And that's why in the new book, I, I start almost right from the beginning talking about it. Well, this kind of explains um, uh, the energetic imprint left by traumatic events, um, ghosts even, or... or uh, you know, haunted houses where people feel cold spots and so on. You're absolutely right. And it's also what I was talking about. If you view time as a wheel, all we have to do is figure out how long the wheels are. And then if there's a traumatic event that happens in one wheel, and then the wheel turns again, we're in the future. I mean, don't get me wrong. Past, present, and future do exist in one sense. But if something really bad happens in a previous wheel, it's going to happen again in the next one because it leaves a residue, it leaves a blueprint, just like you were saying. Mm -hmm. So that does very much relate to the cycles of history. Some of this stuff is uh, archetypes, and it's like a universal mind, but some of it is the result of things that simply happened before, and when the cycle comes around again, the, those influences, we have to work off the trauma, and, and they will repeat. But what in, astonishes me is how precisely it works and how many examples there are. I mean, the whole second half of my book, 250 pages, I don't know how the heck skeptics are going to handle this because you cannot fight the data. The data is overwhelmingly intricate and, and perfect. There's no denying it. It's, it's a scientific fact that history is repeating itself. Mm -hmm. And instead of trying to tear it down, because believe me, I was aware of this since 1999, and so I meditated on this concept for 14 years before I wrote a book about it. Uh, I've had a lot of time to think about this and try to nullify the hypothesis and see if there's any way that maybe somehow this, this is not really happening. And my conclusion is it's absolutely real, and it's something that we really need to understand. 
Well, you use you use Joseph Campbell's uh, archetypes of the hero's journey, and you know I'm I'm wondering whether you think that people say take on the role of nemesis in order to provide a foil for the evolution of the rest of us, or are they just plain evil? Well, in law of one terms, you can be negatively polarized, which is their term for what we would call, normally we would call evil. There are negatively polarized beings. Um, And if you really, really negatively polarize, you actually have the opportunity to reach the next level of reality as a negative being. But in law of one terms, you have to be 95% negative. And the only way that you could actually even try to get that far is you'd have to be literally a mass murderer. You'd have to be personally responsible for the torture, suffering, and death of large numbers of people. That's the only way you can polarize up to 95%. So like Genghis Khan is an example of somebody who actually graduated as a negative being from our planet. But the, the beings in those, in those realities are so negative that apparently, in law of one terms, Genghis Khan is only a shipping clerk. Like, he has a fairly low-level position in this pecking order of negative beings out there. <laughs> <laughs> so, reminds, me, reminds me of that movie, Despicable Me. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> but at the, at the end of the cycle of evolution and well before the end of the cycle of universal evolution, every soul is a reflection, like from a prism or a mirror disco ball, we're all reflections of the one single beam, the one single luminosity, and negative beings are not allowed to stay negative if they, if they don't eventually go positive in what would be considered sixth density, the very beginning of sixth density. And there's only seven densities before you go back to universal oneness. Mm. And those correspond to the seven chakras. If if they don't polarize positive by the beginning of sixth density, and those are only the really strong ones, too. I mean, a lot of them can't make it that far. But if you don't go positive by then, you simply cease to exist. Your your soul literally disintegrates back into pure light. Mm. Because by that point, you've so forgotten who you are that your soul is essentially recycled as energy. Now, tell me, we're, we're at, we came to the end of the Mayan long count last December. Do you think that we have begun a new golden age? Absolutely. I think that there are hallmarks that have not yet become totally obvious that will be more obvious as time goes on. Uh, the Mayan calendar end date didn't have any overt events that occurred right around it, But now, six months later, NSA disclosures and surveillance is painting a very different picture. There's a huge amount of, I told you so, that we can claim as people who are aware of what's been going on, where the average people who were in the matrix or muggles, to use the Harry Potter word, right, Mm -hmm. they were not aware of this. And they were laughing at people who thought this was true and calling us tinfoil hat nuts and conspiracy theories. And now it turns out, wait a minute, they were right all along. And what people have not yet seen on any widespread level is that there is an international alliance that has been working very diligently to defeat the global 
bad guy, the global nemesis, because there is a global nemesis, and that's a very important stage of spiritual awakening that everybody has to reach. Now, it is scary to read about this stuff and hear about it. There's videos that are scary. There's radio shows that are scary. There's books and websites that are scary. I try not to scare people, but I do say, like, look, just in the same way that you could be living in a town and there's this one wild, raving fundamentalist, and if you happen to bump into that fundamentalist, you're going to get the whole spiel. Oh, there they are again. Oh, my God. Let me see if I can go somewhere else. Well, there's a different type of fundamentalist religion than what most people are aware of, and it happens to be based on Lucifer. And it just so happens that the people who have a fundamentalist Lucifer religion are the most powerful people on Earth. And they don't ever usually come out in the open. Only mid-level people actually participate in an election to be king or president or anything like that. The people who are really behind all this stuff, they don't go out in the open. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that have their hands on the levers of the production and distribution of money. Because when you control money, you control people. and You control their lives and you control whether they eat and whether they starve. And so it's all starting to become clear to, to people now that we are living in a society where the media is being used, not this, of course, but mainstream media is being used as a propaganda delivery system. Uh, you know, I, I met two girls on, on my hiking trail. I do a hiking trail, one of several, and they happened to say, oh, my God, are you David Wilcock? Yeah, yeah, you know. And so then I, I politely stayed and talked to them for a while, and they, didn't, they weren't old enough to know how the Soviet Union was portrayed for an American teenager in the 1980s, which I was. But they were always talking about how the Soviet KGB controls the media and that any, anything that you see on Soviet television is just pure propaganda. Well, it's, it's such a classic case, as Jung would call it, of projection. Mm-hmm. And projection is a psychological <laughs> problem where... Anything that you're doing, you accuse other people of doing. Well, there, there's the old folk saying, the pot calling the kettle black. Exactly. Un- unfortunately, we are very much running out of time. And um, I wonder, David, if you could tell us where people would go to hear about your events, your, your uh, workshops. I understand you're coming shortly to Portland as well as Albuquerque. That is true. I have... Uh... If people actually want to meet me, I don't usually have the chance to meet anybody at these large events because there's so many people, and I usually just have to get ushered right out the door when the talk is over because I do have threats that have been made against me and things like that. And we do now have to have armed security guards and stuff like that. But at the smaller events, uh, people do get a chance to meet me in person one-on-one, take their picture, all that kind of stuff. We have one coming up in Portland. We have another one coming up in Albuquerque. You can read about that on my website, which is divinecosmos.com. At the very, very least, even when I'm the most overwhelmed, I write at least one article a month. I try to write an article every two weeks or more. Right now, I'm in a productivity binge, so I'm doing a lot of articles. So Mm -hmm. Divine Cosmos is really sort of the, the home base. Then the other thing is, for the longest time, people said, David, we want to see you. We want to see more videos. Well, beginning in January, I took on a contract to do a television show, and it is called Wisdom Teachings. You can go to wisdomteachings.com, and it's a low monthly fee. Right now, it's less than $10, uh, 
and that adds up to basically $2.50 an episode. But I'll tell you that this television network, it's an online-based network, um, but there's a lot of different content on there. So you get access to over 5,000 different... This is uh, Guy MTV? Yeah, Guy MTV. Mm-hmm. And what's happened is that my stuff has become the most popular thing on the whole network by, like, a large degree. <laughs> and that's because I'm just packing in so much stuff. It's like all of this information, way more than I could ever cram into one conference. And people used to pay a lot for that, and now you can, you can get a lot of it on Guy MTV. Of course, it doesn't change the value of doing a weekend where you get to meet me in person and meet all these <laughs> other like-minded folks. But, right. so that, but it's a lot that, more accessible now. Absolutely. You know, it's not sealed off. com. Or you, uh, what I recommend is just type in wisdomteachings.com, and that okay. takes you right to my page. Very good. And then, of course, the book is called The Synchronicity Key, and we've only really scratched the surface, but you can't, it, it's such a complex subject, it would take a long time to really get into it. But the point is that this is a book that has a narrative. It's not just uh, science. It's actually a story. And people say it reads like a great thriller. Um, I did write it based on the basic principles of Hollywood storytelling, so it does have those elements in it. Um, and I'm really happy with how it's turned out. And pretty much almost every review we're getting on Amazon, there's over 30 right now. They're almost all five stars except for one. And the other one was four. <laughs> so people well, really are digging this. It's, it's actually it's, it's a paradigm-busting thing. It, it really reveals that we're living in a hologram, and it's a matrix. It's not real in the way that most people think. And that's it a really stunning does thing have, to see this. Absolutely. It really does have uh, something for everybody, from conspiracy theorists to scientific nerds to uh, sacred geometry buffs, etc. Well, so and I also David, pack a lot of wisdom in. It's a, there's a lot of really good soul nourishment in this book as well. That's very important. Absolutely. From your soul to the rest of us. Thank you so much for being with us, David. Well, thank you. This was great. I really appreciate it. David Wilcock, author of The Synchronicity Key, The Hidden Intelligence Guiding the Universe and You. Thank you, David. Thank you. Colby Hopkins is our guest next week. We'll be discussing his book, Another World is Possible. I'd like to remind you that NCR is looking for reviewers, so if you love to read and want to build your library, contact us at reviews at ncreview.com. Well, that's it for our show this week. We don't even have time for a track of the week, so I hope you'll just join us next week. Until then, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.